Welcome to the Laura Plantation Podcast. Laura Plantation provides a cultural experience unlike any other in the United States. Here you will find the difference that exemplifies Creole Louisiana. Explore the rigors of 200 years of daily life along with the sobering experience of slavery as it happened at one historic site on the banks of the Mississippi River in the middle of New Orleans plantation country. In this podcast, historian Katie Morlaw-Shannon and director of PR and marketing Joseph Dunn will be your guides into the Creole world, offering you true, personal, compelling stories of the people who lived, worked, and died at this unique historic site. Real history about real people. Laura Plantation was named for Laura LaCool Gore. Four generations of Laura's family worked on this Louisiana sugar plantation. And her family were French aristocrats, war heroes, astute businesswomen, cousins who married cousins, brutal slaveholders, and people held in slavery. In 1850, at the time of peak production, before it was renamed Laura, the family plantation consisted of thousands of acres, many dedicated to sugarcane, the cash crop. 190 people were enslaved there, most of whom were responsible for the cultivation and harvesting of sugarcane. There were also skilled artisans, such as blacksmiths, carpenters, coopers, and seamstresses, and enslaved housemaids, cooks, and nurses. The big house accommodated Laura's family, her grandparents, Raymond and Elizabeth Lacoul, her father, Emile, her aunt, Aimee, and her great aunts and uncles, Louis and Fanny Duparc, and Flagy and Mercelite Duparc, a multi-generational household. Within the big house, there were also enslaved domestics, almost 40 individuals. The overseer, Severin Treg, and his wife and children occupied another house on the property. And in what was essentially a mother-in-law house, or suite, lived Nanette Duparc, the family matriarch, and her enslaved domestics, Henriette and Nina. Further back on the property, on a road perpendicular to the river, were cabins in two rows that housed 138 enslaved laborers, known as the quarters. Adjacent to the quarters were vast sugarcane fields and a sugar mill. This was a feudal estate with a very defined hierarchy modeled and adapted from such estates in pre-revolutionary France. But Laura Plantation did not begin this way. When Frenchman and American Revolutionary War veteran Guillaume Duparc first acquired the plantation, he arrived with his family and 17 enslaved workers who began erecting buildings, clearing land, and paving the way for a large-scale agricultural operation. 
To understand the world of Laura Plantation, it is important to imagine Louisiana at a time when English-speaking Americans were seen as immigrants and foreigners by the Native American, European, who were mainly French and Spanish, and West African, both enslaved and free, populations of the former colony founded in 1699 by France. Following the transfer of Louisiana from France to the United States in 1803, you'll probably recognize that as the Louisiana Purchase, a stalwart Creole identity emerged in Louisiana as a reaction to the flood of Americans pouring into the territory, seeking land and economic opportunity. Now, this new Louisiana Creole identity was anchored in native birth, the French Creole and or Spanish languages, and the Roman Catholic faith. A Creole identity was in fierce opposition to American English-speaking Protestant identity, and it transcended race. It was claimed by people of white, black, and mixed-race heritage. The French language was at the very center of Creole identity, so much so that Louisiana author and physician Alfred Mercier would write in French in 1883, the day when we cease to speak French in Louisiana, which we cannot at all believe, there will be no more Creoles. Well, today, French is still spoken at Laura Plantation, the historic house, slave quarters, and gardens, as well as an exhibit space dedicated to the enslaved community are all open to visitors. The tours are given in French and English, and at Laura Plantation, Creole heritage is still alive and well. What is the mission of this podcast? What are we attempting to um, to do here? I think the mission of this podcast is to talk about Laura, to talk about Louisiana, and to um, sort of help our visitors who've already come and seen Laura, and also to uh, explore some of these really interesting and complex themes about Louisiana that uh, in many cases aren't explored in other areas and other historic sites or in other kinds of discussions. I, I think historians sometimes talk about uh, Louisiana exceptionality, and I think us as people from Louisiana, we think we're we're special in some kinds of ways, and uh, I, I think in many cases people don't understand why. Uh, and, you know, since the beginning at Laura, we've explored these kinds of thematics about how and why Louisiana is such a different place from the rest of the country. And uh, for me, that's kind of part of what this podcast is about. Yes. And as the historian and working with San Marmion, our, um, my, my co-worker and co-creator, um, we've turned up thousands and thousands of pages of, of historical research and documents and have amassed this, this essentially an archive all about Laura Plantation. And it's impossible to fit it entirely into a tour. So this will be an enhancement to um, our tour and to what our mission is at Laura with our museum there. We will continue to educate and to, to, tell compelling stories through this medium as well. Exactly. So it stands sort of outside of the, the visitor tour experience, because as you mentioned, with this giant corpus of information that has been amassed over the past 30 years of research, beginning with Norman and Sand's discovery of Laura's memoirs in St. Louis back in 1993, and then the ongoing research there in Vashri that has 
extended across the world, actually, because, you know, as you know, there is that archive in France and the French National Archives. There's stuff in Missouri, there's stuff in Louisiana, there's stuff in courthouses and churches and all kinds of archives. And it's a giant jigsaw puzzle. And in the 75 minutes that we have to take our visitors through the historic site when they come to do a tour, there's just no possible way to, to, to touch on all of the expanse of information and complex subjects that, that we want to explore. Right, because at Laura, we are so blessed with so much information, so many stories, and so many people who whose stories often go untold or remain hidden in the um, typical narrative that you get at plantation homes. We have been talking about the lives of the enslaved since our very beginnings, and we continue to to this day. So we also felt that... Um, Acknowledging Black History Month, celebrating it, and highlighting the lives of some of the enslaved people and their descendants who lived and died at Laura Plantation would be an appropriate and important thing to do. Well, and also as a, as a historian, you know that oftentimes the way that we learn history in schools and the profiles and the people that are highlighted are famous people. And history is not always made by famous people. History is made by uh, people who are going about their daily lives. And as we've discovered over time since the beginning of the project at Laura Plantation, that's really what our visitors are interested in. They, they want to know how people really lived. They want to know what their real experience was. And it helps them in many ways relate to, to their own lives because, you know, how many of us can can sort of relate to what it means to be a, a great general or a president or all of those kinds of people that we often talk about in history classes and learn about in history classes. I mean, it's the, it's the common people. It's the 99% of the rest <laughs> of us who are not, not living in, you know, the big mansions or, or experiencing these great wars and battles and huge historical events. It's the, it's the, normal everyday people who who really make history that's where my heart is in my research i feel that it helps people build a connection to the past in learning about the lives of common people of people who would have been just like you and me and in, in that time period and laura provides that hands-on kind of moment via the tour and visiting and we're also letting us know, letting people know ahead of their visit, things to think about when they come. So, you know, different themes that we touch upon, such as be, what it means to be Creole and that big, wonderful Louisiana purchase that um, my daughter is studying in third grade uh, social studies that may not reflect the nuances of the actual event. So we can add to that narrative and expand upon it, I think, with both the podcast and um, a hands-on experience, you know, with real people, because everyone we talk about really lived at Laura Plantation and at a real place, Laura, it's site-specific. Everything we'll talk about is happened at Laura Plantation. And when you walk through the house and along the grounds, you will be walking in the footsteps of the people that we talk about. I use that a lot 
because as the the marketing and PR person, you know, it's it's sort of my job to take the stuff that you do, that that history, mm-hmm. that research that you and Sand have have put together, and then spin that into a, a narrative and into bite sized pieces to convince people um why they want to choose to come to laura and that whole idea of walking in the footsteps of people who actually lived there is uh is really really important because people want to be in places where history happened be it huge giant international news kinds of histories Mm -hmm. or also those that are just kind of ordinary and and every day uh and you know i also really all the time will begin my sales pitches when I'm doing trade shows or when I'm talking to journalists or when I'm talking to people like that by saying, you know, because they will oftentimes they'll say to me, okay, we've been to Louisiana, we've been to plantations before we know what it's about. And uh, I'm always saying, but no, you've not been to Laura because Mm -hmm. what you're going to get at Laura is not what you think it is. Everything that you imagine a plantation house and a plantation tour to be, Laura, is the complete and total opposite of that. And then they're a little bit intrigued because they want to know more about, you know, how this is not the American South, how this is an extension of the French colonial experience and how that played out over the four generations of the Duparc Locoul family and the enslaved people that lived at Laura and how that was so set apart from the experience of the American South. And you mentioned the Louisiana Purchase. I always giggle now when I hear that mm-hmm. term because, you know, for the for the people who lived here, for both of our ancestors, because, you know, our people have been in Louisiana since the colonial period. Right. That was not the Louisiana Purchase. It was the sale of Louisiana. And that's another aspect that we bring to the sort of this this flipped paradigm of mm-hmm. the approach to how we look at this history, because we learn this history in school through an American English speaking lens. And this Creole experience in Louisiana is oftentimes in conflict with that narrative. It's reframing the narrative, seeing things through a different perspective, a shift in perspective to what, as you said, our ancestors would have actually seen it as. So what we're talking about at Laura is what the people of Louisiana would have felt. So when you come to Laura, you're not getting an Americanized uh, viewpoint. You're not hearing what someone in Massachusetts might have thought about the Louisiana purchase or the sale of Louisiana. You're getting what the people who actually lived there and experienced it thought about the event, which is really unique. And we are able to do that because of the thousands of pages of documents we've amassed. I mean, I think about, and I've worked for other plantations and they all were incredibly interesting, but there's nothing like Laura for the research and documentation that exists about the family, the families, because both enslaved and free who lived on this site. And the amazing benefit of having Laura's memoirs. And of course you approach a document like that with some skepticism, but I'll tell you every time we do a deep dive and fact checker, she always checks out. She knows what she's talking about, even when it's a a secondhand story told to her by her ancestors. She has been a very accurate recorder of history. And you get that personalized 
perspective where you're not just hearing about it in a vague general abstract way that you would receive it in a textbook, but in a very personal way about people who really lived uh, and you were able to really connect it to your own experiences, your own family history. Well, I mean, they're, they're very contemporary stories and every now and again, I will sort of toss that out when, when I'm doing a tour, I'll say, you know, if you really listen closely, every one of these stories that I'm telling you has a contemporary parallel. It's the story of the human experience. It's family squabbles. It's immigration. It's identity. It's racism. It's, um, it's, it's social inequality. It's xenophobia, it's misogyny, it's social codes, all of it is woven into the story. It's, it's, it's really the human story. Oh, absolutely. And you can, as you said, connect it to all kinds of things we're facing today because the past informs the present. And if you don't know your past, you're not going to understand your present, what's happening at the moment, or be able to shape the future really in an informed way. Um, my daughter was talking to me about the pilgrims, my, my son and my daughter, because, uh, of course, in school, they emphasize that aspect of American history so much. And I said, well, the pilgrims are fascinating, but that's not part of your family's history. Let me tell you about what happened here. And I think that we're finally beginning to recognize that the historical narrative in America is not complete, that there are many people who have been hidden over the course of time, whose histories have gone untold. And now we're finally reaching that point where people are asking questions and are incredibly curious and want to learn um, not a different story, but a more full story, a story that encompasses all experiences across this country. Well, and you know, as, as well as I do, that your curricula are developed in schools to create a uniform and a, a cohesive narrative that will uh, inform in national identity so that everyone will sort of adhere and, and subscribe to that to that identity and it happens everywhere it's not just an american sure. phenomenon it happens in france it happens in canada it happens in, in 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 every country so that there's a you know a national narrative that that's created but i think there is room within the creation of that for there to be some alternative narratives uh, for there to be inclusion of narratives that do not fit within the, again, American English speaking uh, sort of uh, sort of framework or or box, and you know when we when we think about all of those things that we're going, you know, th this again was not the American South, right? And it it, it I, I think that people don't have a, an understanding that. You know, Louisiana was already an established space, an established French, Spanish, French colonial space before uh, we were sold to the United States in 1803, and that Louisiana was recolonized by Americans, culturally, linguistically, religiously, politically, administratively, and all of that after 1803. And, you know, the, the people that we're dealing with in the narrative at Laura were dealing with that and were trying to find their own 
path through what that meant for them, both as free uh, white people and then as enslaved Afro-descended people. And it, it wasn't a, a perfect marriage at all. So much of what we do touches upon identity, how people identified themselves and then how others saw them. And it's this kind of conflicting narrative sometimes and this cultural collision. So one of the things that we'll be talking about that um, further on in the podcast as we get deeper into the subjects is the fact that one of the most unknown stories and pivotal stories of American history happened right at Laura Plantation. The, when we talk about the Civil War, and we talk about black troops. We talk about the Union Army having soldiers of color enlisted. We always hear about glory, right? And the guys who came out of Massachusetts, the free African-Americans, because there was that movie with Matthew Broderick. And so that's what has always gotten all the attention. What people don't realize is that Louisiana provided more black troops to the Union Army during the Civil War than any other state in the country. And those troops were formed right in Louisiana. They were formed early on in the war. And they were the ones who came out to the river parishes, to the plantations, to Laura Plantation, and liberated enslaved people. And that is what I really want one of, one of the things I really want people to know about Louisiana. And so they were, the people who were enslaved at Laura were ultimately liberated by people who looked like they did and who spoke their language. They were French. Mo uh, most of them were Creole from free people of color from New Orleans and they spoke French and who had this shared cultural heritage with them. Right. And that's one of the things all the time it blows people's minds because they've never ever considered even people in Louisiana when we talk to them they've never ever considered that there were enslaved people in Louisiana who did not speak English and I'll, I'll say that again mm -hmm. many enslaved people in Louisiana did not speak English they were primary Creole or primary French speakers and so you can imagine that their integration into the uh, Union Army was not at all easy uh, because they, uh, first of all, had lived their lives on, on the farm cutting sugarcane. And then all of a sudden they're in, they're in uniforms. They're listening to commands oftentimes from uh, officers who only speak English. So that had to be an absolutely uh, almost surreal experience for them. Yes, absolutely. And Yet it was also it was there they were in a in leadership capacity some of them because very quickly some became sergeants and corporals and they were given the um, opportunity to learn how to read and write something that was denied them by law prior to that moment in in history they were armed they carried guns. And they had authority over the people in the region, something that had also been denied to them legally. And when they served, they received their freedom as well as their, their family members were freed as well. So these are the kind of narratives we're going to touch upon through this podcast and the kind of stories we want to tell that I think both you and me find so fascinating 
um, and that we're rather certain other people will as well. The role of women in the plantation sphere, the role of women within this family and when this, within this dynamic, the role of women generally at Laura, and I'm not just talking about the role of women who are white and free. I'm also talking about the role of women mm-hmm. who are enslaved, um, who are living in the main house, who are living in the dower house, who are also living in the in the quarters. I mean, th- these are very, very strong figures throughout this story, and they have been from the very beginning of the creation of, of the narrative. This place was basically run by women um, through four generations um, because they were in many cases the ones who were making the primary decisions while the men were off either at war or doing business in the city or things like that. So the the role of women in the stories that we tell is very, very important, and it's also on the forefront of the of the storytelling. So I did want to touch on that as I think well. that's so important. And that, again, highlights one of the differences about Louisiana, which is that we follow a civil law system inherited from the French and Spanish, while the rest of the country um, conforms to a common law system that came from Britain. So women here were always able to own property. They were able to inherit property. There was none of this, well, the firstborn son gets it all, it was equally divided among Creole families. And so women always, or at, at least elite women, always had a means of survival, a means of providing for themselves. And when their husband died, it didn't just go to their son or to their husband's brother or a male authority figure. They took it over and they ran it. And that is another incredibly unique story that I think will speak to so many people and will fascinate people because this is not the stereotype that we hold about colonial and antebellum and Victorian age women. We think of them as being so limited um, and and with these kind of cliched uh, ideas about them when in fact here in Louisiana, women were so capable and able and, and they were survivors they had to be. This was a very difficult place to live and to survive in terms of climate and illness and disease and even financial security. So they had to step up and provide and find a way for their families to survive. And uh, I think it might also even be correct and and fair to say that free women of color and even enslaved women observed that. And when they could also were able to take advantage of that, especially in, in urban settings in the city uh, where they were, where they became property owners, where they became entrepreneurs, where they became providers and heads of household and, and all of those different kinds of things. And that is not something that was happening in the American South. And, you know, I, when 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 I talk about Laura and when I talk about Louisiana in the 18th and 19th, even the early 20th centuries, I always make that very clear distinction between Creole Louisiana and the American South. And even though we're geographically situated in the American South, culturally, linguistically, um, in a religious sense, I mean, this is a this is basically a a Latin Catholic space that is not dominated uh, really culturally by American English-speaking Protestantism until, you know, sort of after the Civil War, moving into the early 20th century. 
and you know the, what they said of Charles Gayoray, um, who was the historian, the first historian here in Louisiana. They said of him, "Well, he was an American, but more than that, he was a Creole. He was very representative of the Creole culture. People thought of themselves as Creoles when a major." from the Union Army visited Laura Plantation the, and the owner asked him, what are you doing fighting on the other side? Because we are Creoles. So that was how they saw themselves. It's how they self-identified. And it's so important to remember that. Right, exactly. Well, I think that kind of leads us into the question about you know, why, why French is still important. Yes. It was the primary language that was spoken on the site. It was the primary language that was spoken all along the river, that along with Creole. And, you know, we sort of associate the Creole language now as something very, very exotic, but everybody spoke Creole. And this is a language that was obviously born in the mouths of enslaved people mm -hmm. when you had in the 18th century enslaved people coming from many different linguistic groups in Africa who were suddenly thrown together in this French colony where the French language wasn't standardized at that point either. There were all kinds of different dialects and patois and things like that that were spoken. And there was this linguistic clash that happened that, that you know, gave birth to this Creole language as we know it in Louisiana. And obviously over time, that would also become the language that was spoken by the white plantation owners and the and the white enslavers because in many cases you know they were being brought up in households by enslaved creole speaking women so that right. was their first language um and they would begin obviously speaking more normative french later as they moved into society and they got their education but there was always this very um, fluid bilingualism uh, between the Creole language and the, the French language uh, at, at Laura and at other places, you know, all along the river and down into New Orleans. Because when you lose your language, you, you lose a part of who you are, don't you? Your words matter. Your ability to communicate matters. And when you lose that, you're losing part of your cultural heritage. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and identity shifts, like when language shifts, identity shifts, because, you know, I coming back to this idea of the Louisiana Purchase, that thing is not called the Louisiana Purchase in French. It's called la vente de la Louisiane, the sale of Louisiana. So there's a flipped perspective. It's, it's, it's kind of in opposition to uh, that idea of, um, of, of what that event actually was. And, you know, you mentioned Charles Guéret. There was also a woman, a woman named Laura Andry, uh, A-N-D-R-Y, who wrote oh. in 1881, um, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but she said, you know, people in Louisiana understood what the imposition of a foreign language would mean to their rights and to their identity. And she was writing this in French, and the foreign language she was talking about was English. Right. And that's the amazing thing about Laura Plantation, about this historic site and the families that lived upon it, is that every single major event over the course of American history in some way touched them or they were involved in or they had some kind of role to play. So... We see in every era 
the Duparks or Cools, the enslaved population playing a part in history. Guillaume Duparc, who founded the place, was um, part of the Revolutionary War, uh, the War of Independence in terms of establishing the United States. The Louisiana Purchase, well, Guillaume Duparc was the commandant at Point Coupe and lowered the flag. And his daughter Elizabeth helped lower the flag uh, and raise the American flag. And of course, the Civil War played out right in along the river and along the fields at Laura Plantation. So the, the battle, the both sons of Guillaume Duparc participated in the Battle of New Orleans. You, you can't find anything during that ninth, uh, the um, 17 and 1800s in which the family was not involved in some capacity. Well, and, and not only American history, Obviously, this is playing out on the right. world stage as well, and they are very aware of everything that's going on in the rest of the world because they had maintained their ties to France. They had connections in the Caribbean. They were reading the newspapers and the, the literature and all of those kinds of things that were reporting on what was happening in France, what was happening uh elsewhere in in you know what became the united states so they were very very well aware of what was going on and how it was going to affect them and how they had to try to position themselves vis-a-vis -vis all of these events that were taking place here on the north american continent um in the caribbean with the haitian slave revolt uh what was going on with the french revolutions throughout the early uh the, the late 18th and the early um and the first decades of the of the 19th century they were Absolutely. they were completely aware of all some sort of isolated bubble where they were just sort of, you know, doing their day-to-day -day thing. They were very astute in knowing what was going on. And I think, you know, oftentimes, and, and you know this as well, historically, when you would visit a plantation and there would be talk about slavery, the, and I'm sort of air quoting here, the slaves were mentioned as sort of this abstract mm -hmm separate annex sort of invisibilized and and nameless faceless group whereas they were also individuals they were women children men uh who had their own stories as well and they were not at all completely isolated either from what was happening no, uh, because you know, you had the uh, enslaved people who were living in the household with the family. You had and both women and, and men who were in constant contact with the uh, with the plantation owners. So there was this relay of information into the enslaved community as well about what was going on in the world. And they also knew they were also informed. Yes. And. You know, that is going to be um, another major aspect of what we talk about. We're going to talk about enslaved people, not as a homogenous group, but as individuals. We're going to tell you about Henriette and Nina and Henry Carroll and Lucy. These are people who are just as involved and present and real in the history that is being made at this site as anybody else. Um, any of the European people are European descended people who are there. And 
we're going to, we're, what, what we're so blessed at Lord have, we don't have to rely on a slave narrative, the slave narratives that the WPA took throughout the rest of the South. They would go and interview formerly enslaved individuals who were born at the tail end of slavery, who really didn't have a memory of it and, and wrote down some experiences that they had. Instead, we have actual testimony from people who were enslaved at Laura into adulthood, and they tell us what life was like. We have their words, and that, to me, is one of the most amazing blessings, is that we are able to let their voices be heard now. Absolutely. And, you know, it's also kind of important to point out, coming back to this this idea about language and Mm -hmm. about, you know, Creole Louisiana, now let's also understand that the slave narratives were for the most part like 99% of the slave narratives do not touch on uh, the experiences of non-English speaking people right so there's a huge missing piece of that story because you know the WPA workers that were being sent out to do these jobs were you know for for the most part uh, from you know, not from Louisiana. They're not French speakers. They're not Creole speakers. So again, there's kind of, um, there, there, there's in many ways, you know, lost, lost history. Um, and you know, when I actually started working at Laura back in 1996, there were still elderly people Uh in Vachery on both sides of the color line who had difficulty speaking English. So, you know, this idea of, you know, Louisiana gets sold to the United States in 1803 and suddenly everybody's American. I mean, that didn't really play out in that way. It takes oftentimes generations for people to, to switch their language, to switch their way of thinking. And, you know, Again, as recently as 1996, it was still possible in some areas of Louisiana to find elderly people who couldn't speak English. And that also is something that that people don't really often consider. So those are some of the themes and and topics we're going to be exploring via this podcast. And I'm, I'm just so excited about the direction we're going in and being able to share these stories with everyone who is interested and wants to listen. I think we're going to have a lot of uh, a lot of fun with this, but I think also it's going to help our audience, uh, people again who have already visited with us or people who will come to visit with us, understand our approach, understand our mission, understand what it is that we're trying to do to tell these stories. And I also think it's important, really quickly, Katie, to just yeah. mention that. No, we're, we're not doing general overview history. Our entire approach is to, again, take visitors on a walk in the footsteps of four generations of the people who lived at Laura. And these are personal, intimate um, accounts of, of their lives that are based on primary source documents, oral histories, and in many cases, the words of the people themselves, both free and enslaved, who lived these experiences. Oh, yes. Everything you will learn at Laura will be out of the mouths of people who lived there or written by the people who lived there in some capacity. It's about 
the people who live there. We focus solely on the people at this site, which by the way, if we tried to be more expansive, I don't know how we could because we have so much to work with as, as it is. Um, we've been blessed with that. So we can't wait to, to share those stories and in a more de- in-depth way and more specific way. This was just kind of an overall chat about the direction we're headed in and kind of the themes we're going to touch upon. But uh, we will soon be talking about individuals um, and more particular stories that, that we tell and know. Absolutely. It is real history, real people. Real history, real people. Thank you so much, Joseph. C'est moi qui te remercie. Merci, Joseph. Merci. Au revoir. Au revoir. Thank you for joining us. We invite you to visit Laura Plantation, where you can walk in the footsteps of the people you've learned about today. For more information, see our website, www.lauraplantation.com. Our tour is based on thousands of pages of primary source documents amassed through tenacious research spanning three decades. At Laura, you will walk in the footsteps of the people who made history. Be in the rooms where it all happened. Join us again next week to hear real history about real people.